Isn't it a pleasant holiday? Oh, turkey's in the oven, it's peaceful and quiet. Yes! 300 points, my best score yet! There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day Now is the time, now is the best time Now is the best time of your life And so we wrote that song and uh, they loved that Hottest <laughs> <laughs> summer we've had in years well, we've progressed a long way since the turn of the century 20 years ago. But no one realized then that this would be the age of electricity. Well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit. W, w Radio, your information station. Hello and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 136 for the week of September 13th, 2009. Thank you for tuning in once again. Now, while I certainly believe that there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, I also subscribe to the fact that now is the time, now is the best time. And for that reason, this week, we're going to take a detailed look at a classic attraction, Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. In this DSI Disney Scene Investigation, we will look at its history, evolution, present and future, as well as its significance beyond the Walt Disney World theme park. I'll play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. In this week's DSI Disney Scene Investigation, we're going to take a look at a classic Disney attraction whose history precedes Walt Disney World and even Disneyland, and whose significance to the Disney parks and the Disney company as a whole cannot be understated, because the Carousel of Progress was important, as its namesake represented not just the show inside, but really the Carousel of Progress in Technology that Disney and his Imagineers went through during its history. And joining me this week to take a close look at this very important attraction is a man who goes round and round without really getting anywhere. But on this one, at every turn, we will be making progress. And that is Craig Wheeler. Craig, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lou. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back. And, uh, you know, I was saying this to you offline as I was thinking about this segment and getting ready for it. And, and one that I've wanted to do for, for a long time. Uh, you know, a, a slight caveat before we get started is this one, I think, is going to be somewhat difficult to really give its due and to properly cover in a single segment. Because I think we could even talk about the carousel at the World's Fair alone as a single segment and still you know, go an hour, hour and a half as we probably will. Easily could. Yeah, there's so much history out there. And, and thankfully, a lot's been recorded, you know, in books and magazines and online. But this really is, I mean, huge, huge uh, day for Disney 
when this came out as far as testing the grounds for the future and building technology and, and really just moving forward. And um, just with the level of people involved, this is, you know, who's who among Imagineers and um, really just led to uh, great successes in the future. Absolutely. And as we talk about the carousel's future and the rumors and, and what may be coming, you know, people talk about the carousel and wonder if it's going to go away and what. And I don't think a lot of people realize, like I said during the introduction, its importance and its significance on so many levels. And we'll talk about those, everything from Walt Disney's hand in it and the level of sponsorships and audio animatronics and the voice talents. I mean, it really, there, there's so many deep detailed layers to this attraction which makes it so very important right and and the roots of it actually go back into the 1950s so we look back in 1958 and uh ge and disney were going to partner on a new kind of um little sub land that was going to be at the end of main street called edison square at disneyland and um the whole idea of this was let's show how thomas edison's incandescent light spurred growth and development in the united states um, Disney liked it because they were working on these little things called audio animatronics, and they viewed this as a good opportunity to get some money in to help with that development. And GE saw it as a way to really push their products. Right. And like everything at WDI or at that point, what would become Wet Enterprises, no good idea dies. And, and fortunately, unfortunately, Edison Square and all the very cool things, actually, they had planned for, for that they call it sort of a, a little land behind, um, you know, by where like the Plaza Inn is. We end up getting the Carousel of Progress, and, and GE and Disney work together. You know, a little more than a decade later, as they start prepping for the World's Fair. The Edison Square actually would have been a lot like what we ended up getting Carousel of Progress, which um, main difference was it was going to be a walkthrough, but it really was going to show 1898 to 1918, 1958, and then sometime in the future. You know, how has how is this idea of electricity starting with the the light bulb? How has this really grown and, and developed for man, you know, from ice boxes and stoves, you know, through refrigerators and then the newest GE appliances in the fifties and then what future life was gonna look like. And then of course the promotional area at the end where GE was gonna try to sell their latest and greatest. Right. And if and correct me if I'm wrong, was the original Edison Square design that was going to be a walkthrough attraction as you, as the people would walk from theater to theater as opposed to the rotating theater that we have now? That's right. The street would have been kind of like a dead end, and you would have entered, I think, on the right, and then you would have walked into a little pre-show area um, that had kind of dioramas that were depicting Edison's workshop, and then you would walk in through the four theaters, very much the way the Carousel Theater would transport you to the to the different theaters in the future. And then it was the progression through time the same way. And how has this technology changed man? Exactly. And like you said, very much, obviously, that, that similar concept and theme carries over to what we're going to have at the World's Fair in New York in 1964-65, which is Progress Land. And let's talk a little bit about how Disney and General Electric come together because they are not the only company that – Disney decides to start partnering with to create attractions for the fair. The fair, actually, this was the, the 300th anniversary of New York City, and, and New York actually went through a little bit of trouble to get the fair there. Um, but they ultimately got it, and they had this big theme of peace and understanding, and they wanted to show how uh, man's – this is a quote here – man's achievement on a shrinking – globe in an expanding universe so you know you look at the different things they were in so working with pepsi on small world well that's very much you know showing the shrinking globe and progress land shows 
shows how you know we're expanding the universe through you know technology can take us into the future. And then we also had uh, Ford's Magic Skyway, and and you know with more technology, we're kind of looking backwards, but with technology looking forward was the Illinois Pavilion and the great moments with Mr. Lincoln and the most advanced audio animatronic the world had seen. Absolutely, and and you mentioned Ford and Pepsi and General Electric, huge huge corporations, and this is going to sort of sort of begin to. Uh, you know, it carries us over from what was going on in Disneyland and in Disney World, the importance of that synergy and that corporate sponsorship. Right. And Disney really had two aims with this. And one was, let's let's get these corporate dollars, you know, the same thing we had with Edison Square, and, and let's advance our technology on somebody else's dime. And we can work with them um, and see how they want to utilize the technology, but we're going to get the benefit in the long run. And the other thing was testing the waters. You know, Walt had his park out in California, but the, the East Coast audience was viewed as a little more sophisticated. You know, that's where the, a lot of politicians and, and dignitaries lived on the East Coast. And Disney really wanted to test the grounds and, and see if um, the East Coast would respond to Disney-style attractions. And was this a possible area that, that we can move a new park into in the future? Right. And, and as much as Walt was a very, very hands-on, uh, you know, head of the company and very much involved in the creation of these attractions, I think Progress Land was different in that it very much was Walt's idea, and he very much had a vested interest and immersion into this project. Uh, he wanted to, like you said, showcase that progress in technology, still with making sure that the focus was, like in Disneyland and Walt Disney World, on the family first and foremost. And I've heard and I've seen interviews with a lot of the Imagineers who talked about how very deeply Walt was into it personally. You know, wanted to make sure that the characters reflected certain values and attitudes. And I remember John Hench talking about that when they were talking and they were sort of laying out the Cousin Orville scene, uh, he goes and visits where they're building the set. And he jumps, and Walt Disney jumps into the tub, and they, they turn the tub around, and he's like, okay, what, what would Cor Cousin Orville do if we were here? And he took off his shoes and he wiggled his toes. I mean, he, he got into it that deeply as opposed to just pointing the finger and saying, yeah, do this, do that. Uh, he very much w had was truly hands and feet <laughs> uh, a part of the creation of this attraction. Yeah, he was visiting the sets almost daily, looking to see the progress they were making, um, the approval for all the dialogue had to go through him, um, looking at the values that he had, you know, it was the very Midwestern values that he held, and, and he wanted that reflected in the dialogue. So he, he cast, wanted to cast actors that had that Midwestern drawl. And then all the little bits of business, as they called them, Walt very much got into them, like the cousin Orville, and the idea of he felt they needed a weenie, and that's where the dog came from. So the idea of the dog was this continuity element between every every set stage that people could get in and they could see the dog and, and want to see more of it. Right. I actually read a little bit of trivia here. There's this book called the Walt Disney World Trivia Book, Volume 2. <laughs> and I read in there actually that in some of the different versions as we go through history here, the dog actually goes from white to light brown to dark brown. Uh, have you heard of that book? Now, if that, if that fact is true – um, I'm a huge fan of that book. And if not, I'm sure it was a typographical error or some sort of problem with the printer or publisher or editor somewhere along the way. But I, I believe that to be true. So. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, I'm biased. Um, but yeah, and, and great point about the dog sort of bring uh, the continuity between all the scenes. The script was written 
by Marty Sklar. But when you talk about the, the, the figures and the characters, this was a very important attraction because of the use and the leaps forward that were taking place as far as audio animatronics. You didn't have just a single figure. You had scenes of a family um, being put together and how they were being programmed. And, and there's this obviously very famous video of Walt when he's pitching this and he's showing this off to GE through the use of a video. And he's sitting there and you see Waythel Rogers in the harness sort of acting out the the, uh, the movements and the gestures of the father in one of the scenes. Yeah, classic scene. And um, if anybody has the Disney treasures, the Disneyland tin set, that's actually on there. There's a feature that was called well, uh, sorry, Disneyland visits the 1964 World's Fair, and it was actually an episode of the Wonderful World of Color, and you can see that scene on there. And um, it, it's interesting looking at that because Walt makes it look so easy. I mean, he's really just trying to show, hey, look at this magic we're making. When in behind the scenes, they had this contraption that they could use to to move the animatronics, and they also had what you've seen in in some of the newer videos where you've got this control board with lots of knobs, and they're using the knobs to move the characters, and that was done for a lot of the fine tuning. But the stories of the audio animatronics and the learning curve they went through of getting all these various tracks to sync up and then mixing multiple tracks onto a tape and then all the tapes having to run in sequence to to get this whole show to work. Everything from the dialogue to characters' movements to the scenes where, like, the refrigerator opens. All of that had to be perfectly synchronized, and it was really a a big chore that even a couple days before they were previewing this for GE executives, they were running running um, real tapes back and forth to audio mixing centers, to a um, radio studio in New York to try to get this all right and hammered down at the last minute. Yeah, and like, like what is the hallmark, I think, for every great Disney attraction? It was truly, again, a collaborative effort between legends now of Disney Imagineering. You've got the... the Characters being sculpted by Blaine Gibson, the script by Marty Sklar. You've got some great voice talents even from outside the company coming in. You have Harriet Burns. And, you know, one thing Disney does, and they've always done, is create incredibly detailed and intricate concept models, scale models of these attractions. And she created the one to really kind of sell this idea for General Electric. And they said that when they saw it, they said, if you can make this in this kind of detail in a full-blown attraction, then, then we're on board. Um, so many others, uh, obviously, the building itself, the, the, the ride system, and remember, this is a ride. It's not just a show because you are moving, was uh, designed by Welton Beckett Associate, um, actually came from an early, con- like everything else, recycled from an early concept back in the 50s for a General Motors dinosaur exhibit that they never used, this idea of the use of a moving theater and steel rails and wheels that they actually took from railroad equipment. Uh, again, all these things, all these people had to come together to make this work. Even the Sherman brothers who, uh, you know, Richard Sherman talks about how he was doing his own thing. They were working on movies and he, they, this, this project that was being done and all these things being done for the world's fair, you know, they were nice, but they really weren't having much of an impact on it until Walt says, well, come on, we need now, now we need you to write us a, stop what you're doing. You have to write us a song for the, for the Progress Land uh, attraction. 
Yeah, he actually described it more of troubleshooting. They, they got pulled in kind of late. The script was done. The timing was all done. And they had very short windows. You know, you have to write this bit of song that can be played in 14 and a half seconds. And you have to be able to <laughs> put it in the 20s and 40s and 60s styles. Plus, we need to be able to orchestrate it to use it as background music. They really had a challenge. Plus, they had to sell this idea of progress and try to sell GE without actually you know, making it a real commercial where they were mentioning the product. Yeah, and, and again, it's so important, not just for the World's Fair and everything, I mean, but moving forward, I mean, he had also, he needed to be able to show future sponsors, hey, we can create an attraction that will work for you and it'll work in Disneyland and it'll work in, in Walt Disney World. So, like I said earlier, you can't understate the importance of this and how you know, what a milestone this was in Disney history because of the sponsorship and because of the proof of concept and the technology demonstrations and the research and everything else that went into it. You know, again, Carousel of Progress, very much, you know, one of those things that you need to look back on as a turning point for not just the Disney theme parks, but I think that what sort of the Disney company as a whole. And I think that's where we get the idea of, Walt putting all this time into it, he recognized the importance of this as far as technology, um, sponsorship, testing out that East Coast audience. And you get people like Joe Fowler and Marty Sklar were saying they saw more of Walt in this attraction than anything else, that it's this living legacy. And um, as we look at later on at refurbishments and renaming it to Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, that's a reflection of Walt's involvement and how important this was to him. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things I, I like about the current incarnation, much like the Tiki Room in Disneyland, is that it's, it is Walt Disney's carousel of progress. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that later, sort of moving forward, what may or may not happen to it. And Craig, when we talk about this attraction and Walt's hand in it, um, and again, you know, it was not just about an attraction for him. It was very much about the people that were involved and that doesn't necessarily mean just the voice actors and the imagineers yeah the animatronics got a little bit of play here walt had what i think was a genius marketing move um couldn't do it today but he actually bought a plane ticket for the grandmother animatronic now it was just the bodysuit but it had you know the hair and, and makeup and the clothing and everything and he bought her a first class ticket to ride to new york and um, had a, a representative fly with her and um, drew a lot of attention. Some people, you know, saw it and thought this was a real person. And there's uh, stories, you know, after the success of the first flight, they flew her all around the country. And it was really a great publicity stunt for the fair in general and for GE and for Disney. And there were people that would sit next to her on a plane and, and they'd get off and, you know, they'd wave at her because they sat next to her on the plane and get mad because she didn't wave back. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I sat next to her that that whole flight and now she won't even wave at me in the airport. And again, like you said, simple but brilliant and so sort of out of the box thinking from from a marketing perspective. Right. And it just started as a little joke. It was Walt being silly Walt. But uh, it really proved to be great publicity. And her name was Mrs. G.E. Fair was the name that they gave her so that when she got advertised in the newspapers, everybody could see what was going on. That's awesome. That's And I think that's one of the things that – one of those stories that doesn't necessarily always carry forward when you think – so next time you see the grandmother when you go see Carousel of Progress, you can kind of think about that and imagine her sitting next to you on the plane. Trying to get through uh, – get her through security might be tough now. D. 
Do you put yeah. it on the? Do you have to put it on the belt? Do you have to actually? Does she have to go through the X-ray on the belt? <laughs> I think she'd have a hard time getting that far for it. She probably doesn't have good ID. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but let's just quickly talk before we talk about what happened to it when it left the fair. Some of the other elements of Progress Land beyond the Carousel of Progress show, and then we'll talk about the show itself because there was a lot more to this in this giant dome building that they have. They had something else called the Sky Dome Spectacular. They had, yeah, actually, the, the first thing you do when you got into the, into the pavilion was you would um, ride the Carousel of Progress, and the, the exit theater, rather than we know today exiting out the back, there was actually a speed ramp on the stage. So GE now had shown you the pass that they've made, and now they're transporting you to the future. So you're going to go up on stage, you're going to go up into the speed ramp, and you're heading towards this Sky Dome Spectacular show. And on the way, you're going to go through the Galaxy of Science and Engineering, or it's also referred to as the Corridor of Mirrors. And as you're walking through here, they had set up um, several screens where they were projecting pictures of GE employees working on new technologies and and different scientists and researchers finding new innovations. And it was really a way um, that GE wanted to show their shareholders, this is what we're working on. You guys have something to be proud of. But it really set up. You know, this we've shown you the past and now we're taking you to the future. And so this uh, galaxy of science and engineering really did provide the segue into now we're moving to the future. Let's show you where research is taking us. And when I hear this described and when you hear Walt Disney talk about it, I think about things like future world. I think about things like interventions because and and what Communicore used to be because he wanted to show and expected to show again how GE would do things like harness the power of sun and they were going to show you a real electrical storm and you're going to see this thermal fusion experiment really showcasing not just the the distant future but the real world future again that GE was going to be doing and again I start thinking about future world I think about world of motion how General Motors very much did the same thing you've seen the attraction now come and see what we can do for you now and in the very near future we look at the building um it was an 80 foot tall building and the top of it was a 200 foot diameter dome and the dome was built with all the structural steel on the outside so that on the inside as you're looking up was just you know flat panel it was this just big dome kind of planetarium thing with no internal supports and so disney used that for the sky dome spectacular show um to to lead you in with projectors of of all these images on on the roof and it it led you through how man first discovered and learned how to harness energy and, and how it took them forward. So man seeing lightning and how it caused fire, and then they learned to harness fire, and then they could boil water to make steam and use steam power. And then they use the steam power for electricity, and then eventually they're trying to harness the power of the atom, and they want to get into nuclear fission and fusion, and that's the future that, that we're heading towards. And again, from a theme park perspective, Disney is learning by doing because – Arguably, this is one of the most popular and and certainly one of the most uh, impressive parts of the expo for guests. 41, 42,000 people are going through a day waiting an hour and a half, two hours. But one thing that Disney did very well and that they learned from was how to cue people for the attraction, how to move people into and out of and through this attraction. And again, carry those proofs of concept on forward to Disneyland and eventually Walt Disney World. Right, this had a very high capacity. About 4,000 people per hour could move through the pavilion, which is just huge compared to a lot of the things that are um, displayed today. So 
you had um, two six-month seasons the fair was open. And in 1964, about 7.5 million people visited this pavilion and about 8.2 million in 1965. So, I mean, they're really pushing the people through. Those are six-month numbers. Exactly. And again, huge benefits not just to Disney but for General Electric. Again, this is sort of their you know, year-long showroom for their technology with an incredibly captive audience that is now being entertained while they're learning about their products and technology. Remember, GE, very new company at this time. This is not the GE that we know today that's, you know, this this monstrosity of a corporation that extends its reach so far. This is very much introducing people to General Electric as well. Right. And their their, their motto at the time was um, progress is our most important product. And so they were really trying to show that. So we've seen, you know, where we've been and and we've seen where we're going through the Sky Dome. And so the next part then is this nuclear fusion generator that they've got on display. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, amazing sort of, uh, you know, you don't think of GE and nuclear fusion here in 2009, but that's where they were thinking. You know, that that's where they were going with it. If you want to get geeky, they had a what was known as a theta pinch fusion device that actually created a controlled uh, nuclear reaction, uh, fusion reaction actually in live view of everybody it was in this little contained dome and um it would last six millionth of six millionths of a second and generate temperatures in excess of 10 million degrees fahrenheit the new uh, iphone 3gs actually has that now as an app you can download that from the itunes store the new oh, there's an app for that <laughs> so um but let's talk about the carousel itself and 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 where it went from there. And then I want to talk about the show specifically because when the uh, World's Fair closed in uh, 1965, obviously now Disney has this attraction that they can do something with and they bring it over to Disneyland in July of 1967 as part of their sort of quote-unquote new Tomorrowland. Right, they brought it over. Very minor updates through the whole thing. They they refreshed the final act a little bit and and changed the voice work just just a little bit but for the most part it was the same show that everybody got to see at the fair absolutely and you know they didn't bring over things like the sky dome spectacular one thing they did bring over was on the second floor the first floor was the show again like you said very close to the original version the second floor though gave people this post-show area which was the full version of the model of progress city aka Epcot. There was a little mention of it in the final scene. You could see it out the back window, and and uh, the family would actually mention Progress City. And um, and then after the show, you got to actually go see it. And this was huge, 115 by 60 feet, and it had all sorts of moving pieces in it. There was 20,000 trees and 4,500 structures, 1,400 working streetlights, 2,500 moving vehicles. This was a very big, very intricate model of Walt's vision for Epcot. Um, the Epcot City that that was never actually built, and they were calling it Progress City. And again, touching on what we talked about before about the corporate partners bringing this attraction here, they've got GE. It's now GE's Carousel of Progress instead of Progress Land. As part of this new Tomorrowland, GE is not the only big player. You also have Coca-Cola. You've got Goodyear, Monsanto, McDonnell Douglas. Again, I think they see the benefit of what was going on for GE and Ford back at the World's Fair. Right. But eventually, GE felt they kind of had outstayed their welcome in Disneyland. Everybody had 
seen the pavilion that was going to, and they wanted to get on the Walt Disney World train in Florida and, and find new audience and get their, their message out to new people. Absolutely. So it closes in 1973 in Disneyland, replaced by America Sings, and moves over to Walt Disney World on January 15th, 1975, so the official grand opening. But here is where there are some relatively minor changes. Remember, the story is going to pretty much remain consistent, although now we have a new finale and we also have a new theme song. And the theater is now rotating a different direction. Oh, very true. Very true. And we should mention that, too, that the what rotates in the theater are is the audience. The, the stages don't rotate. The audience is what rotates around the theater itself. Right, and it's spun um, originally spun clockwise, and then now moving to Walt Disney World, we spin counterclockwise. Which so for some reason almost right seems to make there. more sense. I don't know why it seems to make more sense to move counterclockwise. Maybe just because that's what we're used to. Right. So they got the new song. I got to ask, Lou, are you a now is the time guy or are you a great big beautiful tomorrow guy? You know, I hate to answer this question because I, after talking to Richard Sherman, I know what great big beautiful tomorrow I, I feel sort of means more to him than now is the time. Um, and I understand the message and I understand the meaning. And I, but for many, many years, remember, this opens in 75. I'm seven-ish. Um, that's kind of what I grew up with. Um, I, I grew up with now is the time. But however, in deference to Mr. Sherman, who wrote both, um, I'll say Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. But you will hear me singing now is the time every now and then in my car. Um, I love the the Richard Sherman quote where he said, Wall really felt that there was a great big beautiful tomorrow. So I, I agree with what you say. I really think that song meant more to him than the new one. Um, and the new song really was an effort from GE. I mean, it, it was kind of a branding thing. GE was no longer saying progress is our product. You know, they're saying we bring good things to life. They don't want you to wait till tomorrow to go buy their appliances. They want you to buy them today. Now's the time to go buy some GE appliances. Right, and this so, came uh, right. This came directly from the top. It came from, I guess, Jack Welch at the time was was probably CEO. He wanted to talk, like you said, about today and now and buying products now, uh, which I think, again, from a, a personal preference, almost takes away from the meaning of the song as much as "Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow," which really came from Walt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we eventually did in, in during a nineteen ninety three refurbishment got. Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow back. And I have to say, that's that's what I remember. I don't have memories. Um, I, I grew up in the 80s and took several trips down, but I don't remember the Carousel of Progress from the 80s. I remember it more from my teen years in the 90s. So I, I always have been a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow guy. It, it, listen, it's, I, I love them both. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> now like, they're like, you like now is the time. But I, again, I, Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow is the anthem. And I think it always yes. will be the anthem for yes. this attraction. So a uh, couple other little details about when it uh, came to Walt Disney World. Obviously, remember, back at that time, we're using the A, B, C, D, and E coupon books. This was a free attraction. Maybe that's why my dad liked it so much, because we went a lot. <laughs> um, it was a free attraction, uh, part, and it was part of that Tomorrowland expansion that was taking place uh, in the early 70s. And again, GE comes on board with their 10-year contract. Right. So we saw, you know, GE, with having the sponsorship, wanted to keep the ride up to date. So moving it to Walt Disney World, we got a 1970s final scene. 
Um, and then we got 1981. The finale was updated to 1980. So GE was keeping it current until March of 1985 when their sponsorship ends and they, they choose not to renew it. Right. And I actually remember vividly when it went down and reopening with all of the GE logos and references being taken away from the inside, from the outside. If you look really carefully, uh, I think the old, I think one of the old stoves, or there's a couple of appliances that still might have a General Electric marking on it, but for the most part, completely gone as of uh, March 85. Right. They didn't really change the the dialogue, though. So there still were kind of references to when when Father would make references to, you know, the people that are bringing good things to life. That stayed in, even though GE... Uh, did not renew their sponsorship. So it was kind of maybe, I don't know if you'd say a little awkward that that kept going on with the dialogue. True, true. But like you said, the I think the most significant update takes place in 1993 for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it's renamed Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, which I think is important. Uh, I like the fact that they add the video in the outside sort of queue area talks about the history, educates people about the history of it. And really, I think, Craig, they want to kind of bring this back to that original 1964 version as much as possible. That video is absolutely my favorite thing that they did with that refurbishment. The The video, um, while Disney was going through designing the ride, they would send periodic video updates to GE to show them here's what we're working on, here's the progress we're making, and, and really just trying to sell it and, and show them, hey, we're doing a great job for you. And this is one of those videos. So this wasn't something really designed for the public. This was, you know, the, the section with, with Walt and the Sherman Brothers singing. This was them showing GE, here's what we've got for you. And then you've got, I love at the end when the Sherman Brothers turn around and they've got the big GE logos on their back <laughs> and jump up and click their heels. That's, that's uh, I, I just absolutely love that, that clip. I do as well. Um, I love it. I love being able to, to see the Sherman Brothers who compose it, sing it, and to see Walt Disney singing it. Um, there's something about that that I'm with you, and I have that same sort of affinity for that clip. And again, that, that wonderful logo placement on the back of all their jackets um, as they're going through it. Very, very well done. And again, you can find these online and on some of these video series as well. But certainly you should go and check it out in the queue for, for the attraction. Right, we had some um, some voice and dialogue changes too as we go in through this refurb. So, uh, the father is now voiced by Gene Shepard, who's most famous for narrating a Christmas story. We've got uh, Grandma in Act Four is voiced by Janet Waldo, who is the voice of Judy Jetson. Um, the original voice for Father Rex Allen now voices Grandfather. And um, the only piece of original dialogue that has survived through the whole thing is Cousin Orville. And that was recorded by Mel Blanc for the original. And it's still him in the, the latest incarnation of the show. Yeah, and that's the only thing Mel Blanc, a.k.a. Bugs Bunny, has ever done. Uh, supposedly he did some grunts for... Uh, uh, the Ford Pavilion. Right, but, that, but the only dialogue that he ever spoke was that. And, um, and there's a story that he actually, in order to make it as authentic as possible... Instead of having a cigar in his mouth, he stuck a pencil in his mouth when he was recording it so it would sound just as it should um, if if he was. Something else, too, was the story and the four acts in this sort of play uh, all revolved around – I'm sorry, pardon the pun – a holiday. Um, each of the, the scenes now now involve the holiday, um, holiday uh, Halloween, Fourth of July, Valentine's Day, and obviously the final scene is, has Christmas. 
the show did, I, I believe the show always kind of went through the seasons, but this was now definitely holiday centric. You're right. Yeah. And, and I think the most dramatic change, like you said, really was in the final scene when you get, you sort of move from that late sixties look and feel to the nineties with the high def TV and the computer, uh, things like that sort of, it's today with a little hint of tomorrow. I think now in 2009, it's sort of more nostalgic than futuristic. I've just got to say, I, I hope that I age as well as father has, because he's got to be well <laughs> over a hundred in that scene. Well, and you know, that's the thing. If you, if you, you know, they talk about Marty Sklar and his script. It was never really clarified in the script if it was the same family through time or a number of different generations. And if you notice something else, too, and we'll talk about this as we talk about the play, there's only one person, while, while all the other characters speak, only one character ever talks directly to the audience, and that's the father and the dog. That's right. The dog's sort of and, and <laughs> I think this sport. came... Queenie. I'm sorry, <laughs> Buster, Sport, Queenie, whatever you want to call them. Oh uh, yes, the dogs. As well, it's it's just Rover now, right? It is Rover. He is Rover. But yes, he was Rover, Buster, Sport, and Queenie. Did change his name in the different scenes. The yeah, you, you speak about Father talking directly to the audience, and um, that was actually kind of the original design of when they were writing the script. Um, it was based on the, a narration style of Thornton Wilder's Our Town where you had this one character that narrated through the whole thing, and that was kind of how they, they um, based the dynamics of the show. Yeah, and let's talk about sort of specifically the the different acts and, and what they go through. Because, again, this is really sort of a four-act play with the first act being in the turn of the century, the, the pre-electric era around 1890s. Uh, Dad is introducing the family, which is his mom, his son, his daughter, and, of course, we have Uncle Orville, and uh, one of the things I loved about this and obviously all the scenes are, and it's such simple technology, how the characters on the side stages appear from behind the different scrims. Right. That was great technique they used because it allowed them, rather than having three stages, I think they, they'll do four or five stages really on each one when you get two on each side plus the one in the center. So it was really good use of the space that they had on that stage. Right, and it's a big stage. I mean, a very, very big stage too. I mean, you can't sort of lose sight of uh, of how big and how much is really going on in all these uh, scenes at once. Right, and you have. Um, I do like the the central theme of you know father narrating the whole thing, like we've talked, and um, really taking us through um, you know what they have today. And, and how every time, you know, this is this is great where we're at now, and I can't imagine what's going to come on in the future. And, and that theme kind of goes through the whole thing as well as we start, you know, in the late 1800s. And they really don't have electricity, but they, they recognize that there's people working on new innovations somewhere that hopefully is going to make their life better. Exactly, and that, and that very much holds true in the second scene, which is the 1920s. And one of the things that I, I love about this is how there are just hanging wires everywhere. It's the middle of the summer, the hottest summer um, on record. That's where air cooling and and, uh, and Uncle Orville comes into play. But the wires that are hanging around everywhere, uh, just very, very well done. Really like that. Is Yeah, classic touch. But uh, I I really just wonder if we went step back into a home of that period, if that really is what those looked like. Right. Is that what it looked like? Is that what the family of the 20s, is that what they were doing? Was the record player sort of the 
the media hub of the house. Um, was that the music server right there? Was the record player? Um, and, you know, sort of their main form of entertainment. Right. We get, um, moving into the future here, you know, they're showing we've got the, we've got electricity. What can we start doing? We've got our fans. We've, we've got our improved stoves now that we can actually, you know, cook and, and leave things alone. And, you know, milk's not souring. And, and um, the family is showing this is what we have today. You know, maybe it is a mess with wires hanging everywhere. Maybe we do blow fuses and it's annoying, but we've got this technology. Life's getting better. Right. And it, like you said, it can't get any better than this. You know, there might not be any privacy at all around these parts, but it, certain technology can't get any better until we get to Act 3, which is the 1940s, really the start of that electronic age. And when and one of the things I like personally about this scene is the inclusion of some of those catchphrases from the time when they talk about the rat race and the rumpus room that that mom is painting using the cake mixer as the uh, to stir the paint. Right. We've got the you know watching TV and the good guys chasing the bad guys and it's always going to be that way. Yeah. Well, because now and two. Here, TV has now finally become affordable. So now this is what modern technology is what. This is now the entertainment center of, of the home. Right. And, and I, I always like the gags where they're constantly showing grandma and grandpa also having, you know, they're, they're listening to the phonograph, they're listening to the radio. And it was kind of the theme for the whole thing was grandma and grandpa getting involved in everything too, which I always liked. Right. And again, everything goes back, and this is Walt's touch. Everything goes back. This is not about showcasing technology. This is about the family and how the family is enjoying and using the technology together. And in that final act, uh, in the original version, sort of according to Walt, it was the family of today. This was the family of 1964. This was going to be sort of the, the grand finale. And originally, this was what they call sort of the GE medallion home uh, at Christmas time. And this was their chance to showcase all of these new amazing GE appliances, the dishwasher and the self-cleaning oven and the translucent walls that would change color to reflect your mood, which didn't quite make all the uh, incarnations after that. <laughs> right. And even even the furniture, I mean, they were going with, you know, this wasn't GE products, but they were trying to show um, this is the family of today. But they were really trying to stretch, you know, here's the far reaching end of what today is. We've got the best appliances. We've got the the latest furniture and, and really everything was trying to show this family really is forward looking. They're living in as much in today as they can. Right. And originally with the World's Fair, you could see these ideas uh, in the post show. You could actually see, you can find out more about them. So it was sort of a showroom for General Electric. Now, obviously, it's much different. And when we look at the final scene today, you know, if you had to sort of date it, Craig, you know, I'm thinking mid 80s based on the outfits and the technology and the video games and things like that. So it no longer is about today or moving forward. It's almost more of uh, carrying on a nostalgic look of what at the time was the future. Right. And, and it's it's interesting that I think a lot of people clamor for wanting a refurbishment to really update this to the 2000s. But it, it is, if you think about it, fits in very well with Tomorrowland's theme, which is what did the future used to look like, if that makes sense. What did, what did we had in the past? We had this vision of the future, and that's what we're trying to do with Tomorrowland. And that's kind of now where, whether it's by happenstance or not, the carousel fits in. That last scene is 
back when this was refurbed, what did the future look like? Right, and it wasn't a fictional view, you know, a Jules Verne fictional view of the future. This was what the future was going to bring, and obviously it has. Um, you know, very early on, I remember the show talking about um, how they were going to change the way they were watching TV because they were going to be able to start recording TV shows and watch them at their leisure. Then they moved on to things like Laserdisc, obviously not being updated to the technology we have today. But you're right, it's sort of that that frozen moment in time as to where the technology was at the time at that cutting edge, but really coming to be reality. I, I mean, I don't necessarily talk to my stove the same way the father does, but again, that was sort of the vision. Yeah, we still haven't gotten that stove yet. I'm still waiting for that. It's on order from Best Buy. Yeah, I talk to my microwave, and it's usually just to heat up my popcorn, but uh, <laughs> that's the extent of my cooking. So um, very interesting, but always the same message carries forward in the in that final scene, which is to keep moving forward and don't stand in the way of progress. And again, using the family to show that nobody's standing in the way. We're all sort of adopting these things and enjoying all these things that whether it was General Electric or whomever it might be, uh, is bringing as the future comes forward. Right. I'd have to believe that if father were to come into yet another scene, he would probably have an iPhone now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Assuming Apple sponsored the Apple Apple uh, Incorporated Carousel of Progress. So, but let's talk about the future and the rumors because for years uh, there have been rumors about what may be happening to the Carousel of Progress. Remember, at some points uh, over the past couple of decades, it would operate as a seasonal attraction, and people said, "Well, seasonal—that's sort of the death knell being sounded right there for the attraction closing down um, or being refurbed." updated, completely gutted, whatever you might call it. I, Craig, honestly don't think that's going to happen. I hope it does not happen because, uh, first of all, I don't think it's ever going to leave. And there's been longstanding rumors that Walt himself said that it was his favorite attraction. It should never stop playing at a Disney theme park somewhere. But I think it does have too much historical importance. And from a theme park perspective, it is somewhat of a people eater because you can get people into these multiple theaters and it is easy to update if they want to update that last scene but it i think because of its historical significance um i think it it makes it very important and it it probably won't change very very dramatically if it changes at all i would have to agree i think one of the great things is that people that tend to become imagineers tend to be big disney fans like us and i think they recognize the the historical significance of this ride. I think they recognize that, you know, so much of Walt was in this and, and so much, so many of Walt's original Imagineers and the people that worked on this and, and legends, I mean, literal legends view this as this is, this is Walt. This is Walt's ideals. This is Walt's views. Um, this was something that Walt poured his heart and soul in that made such a big contribution to the future of the company, to the future of theme parks as we know today. And I would have to think it'd have to be very hard for some of those people to want to let this attraction go. Now, I have to play devil's advocate and say that certainly the Disney theme parks are a business and they are not always necessarily run and decisions are not made. Business decisions are not made based on emotion solely. Otherwise, we'd probably be still riding 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and Horizons and all the other things that we sort of clamor for. But I, I think it begs the question that from a theme park perspective, um, 
and again, I'm, I'm simply playing devil's advocate. I want to see the carousel stay the way it is. Is it still relevant for a new generation of guests? Can you bring the 8 to 12 or 8 to 14 year old in there and think that they will enjoy it as much maybe as we do from a nostalgic perspective alone? And I don't know how nostalgic an eight-year-old can be. So from that perspective, I have to agree with you. It is management that's going to make the decisions, not Imagineering, as far as what stays and goes. The kids don't have nostalgia for it. They're not necessarily going to understand the historical significance it has. And, um, you know, as, as it gets older, it's it's harder and harder for people to identify with the lifestyle. I mean, think when this came out in the 60s, you would have had people that had lived in the late 1800s that were seeing it and could totally identify with where the, what this family had gone through over the years. And you don't have that today. So from that perspective, I think the average Walt Disney World tourist probably wouldn't go into this and, and get it the way that we do. Now, if it was more something like that final scene being updated as a potential showcase for future technologies, because a kid's going to walk in or a Craig Wheeler's going to walk in and say, well, I have an iPhone. That, that space pilot game you know, is what I was playing 20 years ago. If you saw or if they brought in sort of future technology and tried to keep it that way, almost more of a, of a future world type concept as opposed to a Tomorrowland concept, do you think that would potentially add to the interest or longevity of it? Because, admittedly, it probably does not have the longest lines in the Disney theme parks. No, I – and even when you go that route, I mean, Disneyland, they, I mean, it was – I think it was after – it was after this left, but they turned part of their carousel building into an interventions. And and I think we've even seen interventions go through trying to be what you've just described and hasn't always lived up to that. And so we've seen all these more – um, current type attractions come into interventions and that's what survived rather than this this vision of the future which i think um i think we're, we live in a world now where people aren't surprised with the next thing that comes out as much as they used to be where we're so used to seeing new things coming out rapidly that it's it's kind of yeah it's another day we've got another new big thing out there and when this attraction was designed that wasn't the case right and i think disney realized Years ago, that the concept of Tomorrowland, trying to keep up with what is the future, what's going to be futuristic, is impossible because the technology changes so, so very fast. And that's why our Tomorrowland in Walt Disney World and the Tomorrowland in Disneyland and other Tomorrowlands at Disney theme parks around the world have changed their focus. Um, it is not a, a future world uh, type of a concept. Now, that being said, um, again, I... Personally, and I think there's a lot of us that enjoy the attraction the way it is. It is, and I and I hate when people say, "Oh yeah, I love Carousel of Progress because I need a place to go cool off and take a nap." Because that's not how it should be appreciated. Um, it is a living tribute, I think, to Walt Disney, and and I appreciate it on in in that regard. I appreciate it for knowing that that very much was a huge stepping stone in the technology of of audio animatronics and show production for the Disney theme parks. However, the one thing that I would like to see, and if there could be something that if, if I could change the carousel in one way that I would like to add, is I would love to see the full model of Progress City in its entirety and, not, and something that I could actually go and look at as opposed to trying to get a fleeting glance of on the Wedway People Mover 
slash TTA. Right. That does a, I think does a disservice to what that model was because it was, I mean, for us, you know, we can geek out and we can say, well, this was, this was what Epcot the city was supposed to be. But if you just look at, at the model in general and the detail that was put into it, they were painting scenes inside the buildings, even though, you know, most people wouldn't have even been able to see that there was something in the building, but that's the detail that Disney goes to when they make this stuff. And it was just this huge diorama of showing what a perfectly planned city could look like. And I, I agree with you. I think it would be awesome if we could get that somewhere where you weren't trying to, you know, snap a picture at the perfect second just so that you could actually take a minute to, to really appreciate what was in that model, even in just that portion of the model. Exactly, because there is so much incredible detail and it's so very animated and it really, again, sort of reflects Walt's vision for what Epcot the city could have and, and would have been, um, you know, who knows what would have happened if Walt had survived uh, a number of more years. And, and you're right, especially me with my really bad point-and-shoot camera, I, I can never get a good picture of it. Um, and as much as I love the TTA, the view that you get of just that section of it is really not enough for, for all of us to appreciate. So we don't have, a, unlike... The earlier incarnations of Carousel of Progress, we don't really have any sort of a post-show. I would love to see that as some sort of a post-show for Carousel of Progress if, if I could have my wish. And uh, I want to actually put the question out there to the listeners as to their impressions of Carousel of Progress. What do they think should happen to it? What do they like about it? What do they don't like about it? Are you a great big beautiful tomorrow guy? Or are you a now is the time guy? Um what are your feelings on the Carousel of Progress? Because I think they probably uh, span a, a great many different feelings and emotions from those of us who are very nostalgic to those who maybe say, well, you know what? I don't really get it, or I'd like to see it update, or I'd like to see this kind of change to uh, to it. But hopefully uh, everybody feels the same way and that it should remain. And, uh, and Craig, I hope you do as well. Oh, I definitely do. Good. You will be back. I think Craig will, will be back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> for future segments. Um, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I had a lot of fun talking about this. Again, there's still so many more details that we could have covered. And, and I and I implore you that when and if you go back and see the Carousel of Progress, to sit up close and pay attention and look at the technology and look for some of the hidden details. Or if you're a Hidden Mickeys fan, there's Hidden Mickeys in there. And especially in the last scene, Craig, there's some great little details uh, on the on the corkboard. There's some great old software up on the shelf. A lot of wonderful little things to see and to take in and to appreciate about the Carousel of Progress. And I've heard there is a picture of Walt somewhere in the ride also. I've heard that as well. There's also a little little nod to Marty Sklar in the final scene. See if you can find posted. that. That's right. See if you can find the post-it, Nate. So... Uh, Craig Wheeler, um, Disney fan, blogger, Carousel of Progress kind of guy, and uh, and Disney marathoner from runningtodisney.com. Got to throw a little plug in there for you. Um, thank you. Thank you very much once again. This was a lot of fun. We got it. We definitely have to do this again soon. Thanks for having me, Lou. Sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit.
that's all the time we have this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and our look at Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. Thanks to Craig Wheeler for joining me this week. His website can be found at runningtodisney.com. Later on this month, please come out to Disney's Animal Kingdom on Saturday, September 26th for the next WDW Radio Meet of the Month. That's going to be at 12 noon at the Flame Tree Barbecue, lower level, down by the water. That weekend is Adventurers Club Weekend, the Everest Challenge, food and wine, so much more. Hope you guys can make it. If you are interested in coming, please come by RSVP over in the forums or on Facebook. Look for new videos coming on the site this week. Look for a new WDW Radio Live coming in the very near future, I promise. Come over, friend me up on Facebook, join the WDW Radio Show fan page, and please follow me over on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Lumangelo. Celebrations Magazine, to order back issues or to subscribe, you can visit celebrationspress.com. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel, for they are my official and recommended travel provider. You can find them over at mousefantravel.com. All-Star Vacation Homes has more than 150 homes and condos within five miles of Walt Disney World. Their website is allstarvacationhomes.com. And if you're interested in buying or selling DVC, visit Chantel over at dvcbyresale.com. And most importantly, my friends, if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let other people know about everything that's going on here at wdwradio.com. Review the show on iTunes. Come say hi on Facebook. Join the forums over at WDW Radio. And most importantly, have a great week this week. And always, always keep moving forward. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou. It's Kevin over in uh, Cranford, New Jersey. First time caller. Uh, Just wanted to uh, say my girlfriend and I are taking a trip to uh, Disney on September 23rd to 30th for Sands Caribbean Beach Resort. Uh, we were really excited. Uh, we finished paying it off, and then you know, the economy strikes back, and uh, I got laid off and had to take a job, you know, like stocking shelves, things I wasn't really proud of. I went from being an editor of newspapers to, you know, a guy who just stocked shelves, and it took so much out of me that I stopped being excited about the trip. And I was able to listen to my iPod while I'm at work, and I started listening to your podcast, and I just wanted to thank you because... Now, thanks to listening to your podcast, I'm excited again, and you really brought the magic back to life for me. So thanks. I hope you'll be around while we're there. Um, And if you are, I'd love to shake your hand and say thank you uh, personally. So thanks a lot, man. Great show. Keep it up. Hey, Lou. It's Paige. I just wanted to let you know that I really love love your show. I've been listening to it for a while, and um, I also wanted to let you know that I just sent in my application to Disney for their uh, career start program. So wish me luck, and maybe one day I'll see you at the parks with my uh, little name tag on there. All right. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Lou. It's Gary from Columbus. Uh, First of all, thank you for the uh, Tower of Care love this week. Really enjoyed that. Um, I think you're really on to something important with the, the queue line. Um, we here in Ohio have a couple of pretty famous and really good amusement parks. And as I was thinking about them and the difference between them and Disney World, three main things. First of all, the food. And yes, that's a hat tip to you. Second, customer service. But the third thing is the queue line. Because going to those places over the years, 
a queue line there at, at other amusement parks meant standing in the sun for hours sometimes, walking between metal rails. Uh, you, you were lucky if you got shade, a fan, a mist, or something like that, but there was never any effort to put stories into those. And that's something that really is a big part of the Disney difference, I think. So that's uh, a really good topic to discuss. And I, yes, I do think the Tower of Terror is, is one of the best around. So thanks for that, and have a good week. Hey, Lou, this is Brian Rainey. I'm from Kansas City. And I'm really fortunate this summer because I've actually had a chance to go to Disneyland twice this summer. So, yes, I'm calling from Disneyland in California. I just got off the Jungle Cruise ride. Uh, it's pretty funny. The jokes are still pretty bad. And did the canoe ride. And I did, of course, touring over California at the DCA. But having a good time. Weather's beautiful. And talk to you soon. See ya. Okay, that was seriously the freakiest thing ever. I'm sitting there at work, minding my own business, listening to the latest podcast, and out of nowhere, all I hear is my full name uh, after you read one of my emails. And, yeah, that definitely woke me up. I was kind of dozing and not really paying attention, minding my own business. And out of nowhere, you hear, Kirstie Callahan, you're going to put me in an early grave. I thought, you know, you were channeling my mom or something. So... Thank you uh, for finally answering my email um, and mentioning, you know, that I've gone back and listened to all of your podcasts back to back to back, which probably is even out of time that it took for you to, you know, get back to my email, which I said in April. Um, no, just kidding. I'm totally looking forward to three weekends from now, which will be my birthday weekend and the Everest Adventures weekend and Food and Wine weekend, and I'm totally psyched to be able to come and meet you. So keep up the great work, and talk to you soon. Bye. Hey Lou, Caleb from Columbus here in the Magic Kingdom. This is a scary Halloween party on Friday, September 11th. And uh, I'm sitting on the TTA inside Space Mountain right now. Uh, just reopened today. And uh, running through here and checking it all out. Not much to see, really. They've got everything that you'd want to see blocked off. Uh, so no good details report, but there are some interesting and neat changes to the TTA uh, that I will not spoil for anybody and let them uh, come down and grab something Hey, it's Josh from Maitland. Um, I know I already called today, but no, I just thought it was a great idea. Um, a lot of people have been saying on new ideas for the Wonders of Life Pavilion and Epcot, um, or what was in it. Um, with how Disney's got all the superheroes now, um, I know it's going to be a couple of years before they can put um, stuff in it, but in a couple of years when they can um, put the characters in, rides and all that kind of stuff, um, I think Wonders of Life Pavilion could be um, a really good place to put a lot of the characters at. Um, because, and you can actually st- still do um, rides well, out, do they can still kind of like go on them again, like making for me, could be like making of a superhero, like how like some of the most famous superheroes that we know, how they became like that, um, like Spider-Man with the Spider-Bite, that kind of stuff. Um, and Kratom Command could be like in the head of like, a superhero, and you see what's going on in their mind when they have to go save somebody. That could be kind of cool. Um, I'm not sure, really sure what they can do with Goofy about health, but I know they could do something with that. Um, what was that? Um, the body, right? Um, I can't remember what the name of it is right now, but going the body and like it was kind of like the Star Wars ride in um, Hollywood Studios. Well, um, 
Maybe they could do something like with Superman, how like kryptonite affects him and all. Something like that. Just there's so many ideas, so many fitness fairgrounds you can kind of do like superhero moves. That would be kind of cool. Um, I know how they used to have the um, baseball training thing with a baseball person would te- teach you how to swing a baseball bat. Um, maybe they do something like spying and teach you how to shoot a web or something. Just like so many cool stuff there. Um, that's really all I wanted to say. Um. I think that's a great idea, and um, that's all I want to say, and see ya! Hi, Lou. This is Doug from theseamazingplaces.com, and I'm so happy to finally have a chance to call you. I was listening to your latest show with uh, uh, Richard Sherman, and I heard you mention uh, Greg Hawks uh, doing a, a number on the Sherman's acoustic album, and I didn't know if you were aware, but Greg Hawks was the keyboardist for The Cars, who's now into doing uh, courses he always done has done. He's played uh, a lot of different instruments, but he's into the ukulele recently. He uh, has done a Beatles album uh, with a lot of different Beatles songs playing the ukulele. And if you want to just see how diverse this guy is, there's actually a YouTube video out there that uh, is called In Touch With My World. It's an old tune from the cars, and you can see all the crazy things he kind of does. Uh, anyway, I uh, just thought I would uh, throw that in. Uh, Lou, really enjoy your show, and uh, I'm always anxious to hear it each week. Thanks a lot, and have a good day. Bye. Hey, Lou, it's Bruce from Brooklyn. I just left Mission Space. I don't know if you remember, I once wrote an email to you asking you in terms of Destiny, the theme song, Mission Space. I never heard it before. You said when exiting the ride, you do, and guess what? You're right. You're right once in a while, too. I'm just kidding, Lou. Bye. What up, Lou? It's Gavin from Sacramento, and uh, like the last show you did on Q's, but I feel like the left coast has got to be represented a little bit here because we've got the Indiana Jones ride. You guys don't have that. Disneyland has the Indiana Jones ride that, in my opinion, is one of the top three queues in all the parks, included in all of the Disney World parks as well. It's the bomb. They have so many details in there and so many different rooms that you walk through. Besides the outside waiting area that's very jungle-like because it's an adventure land, you walk through the main, uh, like, little temple thing, which isn't very big, so it looks kind of like an optical illusion. You see lines of people going in and then no idea where, they, uh, where they're headed. You go underground, and then you literally are walking through caves. Um, lots of shout-outs to the different movies, like um, lots of uh, skulls on spikes. You walk through the spike room. If you look down, you know, you'll see little diamonds on certain rocks. And if you look right above it, you'll see, um, you know, stone columns that could come down and crush you, but they've all been stopped up by what we're assuming is Indiana Jones. It's basically one of the coolest cues I've ever seen in any of the parks. So that has to be represented somewhere on this, even though you guys handle uh, Disney World stuff. Plus, uh, hey, that guy, Listener John from Hershey, PA, that's my hometown. What? Good looking at Chocolate Town. See you, Lou. Hey, Lou. This is Eric, your friendly neighborhood Tomorrowland cast member. I am actually riding the CCA right now, and it is amazing. We just opened it back up today. Uh, this is the 11th, and hopefully it's staying open for a while more. Um, we love it here. This is my first time on the ride, and we hope you check it out on your next vacation down, Lou. All right. Well, have a great one, and we'll see you in tomorrow. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Brian from Hershey, Pennsylvania. I'm calling in to respond about the most favorite queue. 
And for me, my absolute most favorite queue, regardless of whether it's by monorail, bus, or boat, is traveling to the entrance from Magic Kingdom. And as you turn the corners or go through the boatways, etc., and you start to see the Magic Kingdom appear before you, it's that whole thing of getting off the boat, the bus, the monorail, walking through security, going up into the ticket booth, going under the underpass, coming into Main Street, and just breathing a huge sigh of relief of, yes, here I am again. So that's my number one cue in all of Disney World. Hi, Lou. This is Nicole here in Lakewood, Colorado. Just finished up your top cues with Tim and wanted to throw in my two cents. I absolutely have to give my vote to the Tower of Care. Last year at the Tower of Care race, um, I had the pleasure of going with Matt Hotchberg and hanging out with some friends there while down at the Mouse Guest Experience. We got to walk through the queue totally alone. And to see all of those different details and have Matt Hotchberg point out all the wonderful references to not only the ride and the engineers and the dates and, and the different shows that it referenced back to from the Twilight Zone, that, that queue just sets up the mood like nothing else. I love Everest for the story and the background and the history. It's the science geek in me, but I think Tower of Terror, nothing gets my heart pounding and ready for that drop. I quite like that ride. Thanks for the show, Lou. Appreciate all your hard work. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. This is Steve. Uh, this is Lou's Tune on the forums. Uh, I'm just calling to let you know that uh, Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party on Tuesday, September 29th, a uh, group of friends and myself, my wife included, we are all going to be doing our uh, Haunted Mansion costumes. We dress up pretty much every year in our Haunted Mansion costume. Uh, my wife does the bride with the red beating heart and the candle. Uh, I do Gus of the Hitchhiking Ghosts and uh, uh, friends of ours. And uh, we also do all three Hitchhiking Ghosts and we have Prudence who is the maid with the candelabra down the endless hallway. And we also have Pickwick. So the six of us, uh, we will all be in our Haunted Mansion costumes. Uh, Mickey's Not So Scary on the night of Tuesday, September 29th. And it would be great if you and uh, whoever else is listening to this uh, would come out and, and look for us. Awesome, Lou. Thanks a lot. Love the show. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. 